Our Old Testament reading is responsive reading this morning, coming from the book of Isaiah, chapter 25. We're going to be reading verse 1 and then verses 6 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And then the gospel reading from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. As with the book of Revelation, the subject of our study over the last year, I wanted to teach Revelation in a way that you would be able, after you heard the message, after we thought through a portion of a chapter, that you would be able to go home to your wife or to your husband or to your children or to your parents and say, I can tell you what this says. That's my same desire with the book of John. And... Uh, especially, especially in John, the, the chapters are linked together and there's a flow to them that you sometimes don't see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a different, different writing. And John has a, has a purpose throughout the book and he begins to work that purpose out thought after thought after thought, scene after scene after scene. Now, I'm telling you this, in that what we're looking at this morning, what we will see this morning in the first part of chapter 2, is inextricably entwined with chapter 1, especially the last part of chapter 1. And you will understand, if you were here last week, 
you'll have a jump on someone that wasn't here last week uh, because uh, of Jesus' first encounter with his disciples. That uh, really helps in understanding uh, what happens as he walks back to Galilee. I would say this to you, if you're visiting or if you weren't here last week, it will really help you to go to our website. The preacher's not much, but the subject, the Lord showed up and taught it very well. And uh, go listen to it this week, and it will help you with this passage this morning. Now, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us, for we will not be taught unless he speaks. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests. And we come this morning as a congregation of priests with concerns, with people to lay before you, with families to lay before you, Father. Thank you for how you've heard our prayers. And so we come to you this morning. We pray especially, oh, Father, we bow in our hearts praying for Eileen Wood. Father, have mercy. Cause the doctors, the nurses, the technicians to see what they need to see, to do what needs to be done. Oh, Father, save her physically. You've saved her spiritually. Save her physically in this. We pray that you would give her many years yet. Bless Dan, that he would be a comfort to her, and that she, bless her, that she would be a comfort to him. Our Father, we pray for Phil Halley this morning. Thank you, Father, that Sally could be here. We pray that you would bless them at this very special time in their lives, that you would continue to restore Phil. Strengthen Sally, Father. Strengthen her, body and soul, for these days. We pray for Buddy Whittishen, that you would hasten his recovery, that the pain from the surgery would, would soon subside. We thank you for that surgery and how you brought him through it. We pray for Carter Reed this morning, Father, that you would give him what he needs as he waits there in a the hospital in Birmingham. We pray that this transplant will be able to be done. Provide, Father, in that situation. We pray for Sandy Berlin, that you would Father, bring healing to his body and give him wisdom in the decisions that he will make in the coming days. Father, we pray for the family of Peggy Harris, for Jean and for Jana, that you would comfort them. We thank you for their faith, their mother. We pray that in thanksgiving for how you blessed us and blessed that family through her life. Our Father, we pray for Cindy Reader this morning. Oh, Father, what, what a blow to her and what a blow to the whole church this week. You took Harry Reader home. We pray that you would bless Briarwood Presbyterian during this time. Bring healing. Give the leaders wisdom, especially now, and cause them to make right decisions. But, Father, be with Cindy and her family. May their testimony be that we could not imagine the peace and the joy that Christ brought even at this time. Wipe away the tears, Father. We pray for the family of Tim Keller. 
We thank you, Father, for his preaching. We ask that you would bless his family and comfort them. Give wisdom, Father, to Redeemer Church in New York. Our Father, we open your word now to this wonderful, wonderful passage. We pray that you would teach us. Teach us what we have not seen previously. Remind us of what we have seen and known previously and teach us how precious it is. Oh, Father, fill us with joy this morning as we see and understand anew your word. John Sartell cannot do that. You alone, in the power of your spirit, can accomplish that. That's our prayer in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Let's take a moment to put the passage we read this morning from John 2 in context. Having purposely, and we underline purposely, Jesus having personally encountered for the first time his core disciples, encountering them in Judah, in that area around Jerusalem in the south. The end of the chapter, Jesus walks home with these, with these men that he had just met. He walks with them to Galilee in the north. Now I want to pause here. The great dawn, the great light foretold by Isaiah 700 years earlier had come to Galilee. Now, you say, what are you talking about, John? Well, we all know the passage from Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You know that passage, don't you? We, we're saturated with it. Most of us know it by heart. But we don't know what comes just before those words. It's a part of the same prophecy. Just before that prophecy, just before those words, Isaiah wrote about a glorious day that would come to Galilee. Look at Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2 on your scripture sheet. Bear with me, you'll understand it. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah was writing those words in a dark, dark time of judgment. God's judgment had fallen on the two most northern tribes in Israel, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. They were up near Assyria and had been invaded. It was an awful time. And in the midst of that awful darkness, he was prophesying that a light would one day come to Galilee. That's where Zebulun and Naphtali were. It's dark now, but there's a day coming when there'll be a dawn that you wouldn't believe. That's why he writes the verses, for unto us a child is born. Why am I telling you this? Well, in John 2, the great Galilean ministry of the Messiah has begun. He is walking home to Galilee with these new men that he had met in Judah. The dawn had come. If Isaiah observed this from glory, he could say, 
I wrote about that. He's going to Galilee. The Messiah. And a great ministry will be done there. So, in Galilee, when he arrives, he chooses to attend a specific event, a wedding. At this wedding, he will choose to create his first miracle. Now, question. This is the Messiah, long-awaited Messiah for thousands of years. Why would he choose to initiate his public ministry in Galilee at a wedding. He had started meeting and gathering his disciples down in Judah. We read in verse 2 that he was invited with his disciples. Invited now. Jesus specifically. John is recording what the other gospel writers have left out of their gospels. Why? At a wedding. Well, where had John, think with me now. I want to make a connection. Why had John, where had John begun his story of Jesus? You know, there in the first chapter, the first verse. He began with the eternal Son of God in glory prior to the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word. And what? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. What was the Son of God's final act in creation? In fact, he says, he begins the story of Jesus in glory. Before the incarnation, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. And then he begins to speak about the Word's participation in creation, the Son of God's participation in creation. So what was the Son's final act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2? You know this. The creation of man. The creation of the first man and woman. The creation of the first husband and wife. The creation of the first mother and father. The creation of the first family. He brought the woman to the man and gave her to him and gave him to her. In other words, there was a wedding. Have you thought about that? That was the first, that the Bible begins with a wedding, with a marriage. How powerfully wonderful is that? Now, in the traditional Christian wedding ceremony, ceremony that many of us still use today, we will hear the minister say, we have come here today to unite this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate, instituted of God, regulated by his commandments, and then blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ and is therefore to be held in honor among all men. It's blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Those words refer to Jesus attending the wedding at Cana. In Genesis, it was the Creator's first act after creation to officiate at a wedding. It is where Jesus chose to work his first miracle after the incarnation. Well, what is one of the greatest celebrations we have in all of life? Marriage. Whether it's our marriage, the marriage of our children, the marriage of our grandchildren. It's time of, we just identify with celebration, with joy. Well, Jesus chose at a wedding had a great celebration. He chose that time for his first miracle. And that brings us to our title this morning. Jesus, the sommelier of the feast. 
So you say, well, John, what's a sommelier? The word comes to us from the French language and culture. It simply means a wine steward, a knowledgeable wine professional, an expert on wines. Most of us have been in situations of trying to choose a bottle of wine in a restaurant that will go with the food that we're ordering or with choosing at the wine store a bottle of wine for a friend. What would be the best bottle of wine to give him or her? All of us, most of us have been faced with that. I have a friend who I can call in such situations. He is a sommelier. He knows vineyard owners and winemakers from all over the world. Some sommeliers can taste a wine in a blind tasting test and identify the type of wine, the vineyard from which it came, the type of wine, and even the year. Now, that's just absurd to me, but there's folks that can do that. Well, Jesus, in the scene before us this morning, becomes a sommelier of a wedding feast. We will seek to answer three questions this morning. What happened in this wonderful story? Second, what did not happen in this story? And thirdly, why does this most unusual miracle by Jesus take such a prominent role in his ministry. So first, what happened in this wedding feast attended by Jesus? And well, in that culture, weddings were extremely significant events. And we say, well, they are today too. Uh, they are indeed. We need to get back to that. But even more so in that culture, first, there was a betrothal, something like our engagement, but much more binding. Betrothals were a very serious matter. It was a legal affair. If obligations were not fulfilled, there could be serious financial consequences. There were contracts dealing with weddings. So weddings were events that were planned for months, for years. Families would plan them. Weddings would involve families, extended families, whole villages, whole towns. Weddings in that culture were not over in a day. They usually lasted at least for a week. Parties, celebrations. Well, Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana and Nazareth, remember Nazareth was where Jesus was raised. Cana and Nazareth were neighboring towns and communities. Mary The mother of Jesus was there. Why was Jesus there? Why was Jesus there? We're told that he was invited. This was before he was a household name in all of Israel. He was right at the beginning of his ministry. He hadn't been discovered. So he was not invited because the couple wanted this renowned would-be Messiah there. No. He was invited, probably because he was a friend of the family. In the scene just before this, he had called Nathaniel to be his disciple there at the end of chapter 1. Later in John, we're told that Cana was the hometown of Nathaniel. So, Jesus walks back home to Galilee, goes to Nathaniel's hometown, close by his own hometown, for a wedding. So Mary, Jesus, and at least some of his disciples were invited guests. During the feast or extended parties, the host's wine supply was completely depleted. Now this was a serious, serious social transgression. It was not just a social embarrassment. Legal action could be taken against a groom who was the host and responsible for the cost of the wedding. 
the bride's family could have been offended that this would happen. The groom would let this happen. That culture, the financial aspects of the wedding were the groom's responsibility. Now, some of you with girls, ladies, children, you've got all girls, you're saying, I vote for that. Let's talk to the grooms about this. Well, Mary goes to Jesus and says, there is no more wine. They're out of wine. Now, how many of you want to serve water at a wedding feast? That's how serious it was. Jesus' reply at first seems rude. Woman, what does, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, when we call a wife or mother woman, it seems inappropriate. But remember on the cross, when Jesus looked at John, John was the one disciple that we know, the original 12, that was there at Calvary. Jesus looked at him from the cross, and Mary was close by. And he said to Mary, woman, behold your son. In other words, this man will take care of you. So he addressed her the same way there. So when you consider both of those passages, Jesus was not being rude or inappropriate. It just doesn't fit. When he's expressing great concern, he still called her woman. However, in this case, there was also a gentle rebuttal. What does your concern have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. We see Jesus use this phrase all through the gospel. My hour has not yet come. Remember Jesus' reply when he was a boy and they had been in Jerusalem for Passover. And he stayed behind and was conversing with the highest rabbis in the city, in the temple. They thought he was with their caravan headed home. They soon discovered Jesus wasn't there. They go back to get their son. And what did he say? He said, Mom and Dad, don't you realize I must be about my father's business. He's saying something like that here. Mary, my ministry has begun. I'm under orders from my father. We've all said something like that. You remember your mother doing this to you when you were 30, 35 years old, married, had two children, and your mother was still telling you what to do? I don't need this. There's something like that. And Jesus was indeed under the authority of his father. He was not under the authority of Mary. My hour's not yet come. Ultimately, he was speaking of the cross. But I think he was adding to what he had already said. Woman, you have no idea what I must do. I've come to die, to offer an atoning sacrifice. And, and you want me here at the beginning of my ministry to go find some wine. And then Mary utters an absolute great line that all of us need to hear. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. I'm having that sentence made into a sign that I'm going to frame. Do whatever he tells you to do. We all need to get up every morning and say, this is a day that the Lord has brought to be. Let us rejoice and be glad in it and do whatever he tells us to do. What better way to begin a day? Well, there were six stone water jars there that were used for Jewish rites of purification. The guests, as they entered, this is a huge wedding. This is 150 gallons, we'll see in a minute. They had to wash in acts of purification. This was followed religiously, involved at least the hands and the feet. The crowd was large. They needed all that water. That verse says each pot held 20 or 30 gallons. So we'll split the difference and say those pots held 
25 gallons each. That would be 150 gallons of water for this ceremonial washing. Why stone pots for purification? Jars were usually made. That was the common container. Jars were usually made of hardened mud. But those type of jars would have some dirt in them from the mud. Inappropriate. They weren't used for rites of purification. Stone jars were. Jesus commanded them to fill those six pots with water. And then he said, now pour some in a cup and take it to the master of the feast. This would have been the person that was overseeing the entire feast, the person the groom had hired to cater the feast. And this man was shocked. It was wonderful, wonderful fine wine. He goes to the groom and said, why did you say the best wine until now? Now, this is what happened at the wedding feast attended by Jesus. So what did not happen at the feast? This is a rare passage. It's one of the few miracles in the Bible where both liberals and conservatives have tried to destroy the whole, the, the, the miracle. The liberals cannot let miracles by Jesus stand because they don't believe he's a son of God. And every miracle was a sign that he was indeed the son of God. It was a supernatural event. So the liberals, believing he's only a great moral teacher, they make every effort to say the miracle didn't happen. They explain it away. I enjoyed this. I've got to tell I don't have this written down. But when I was in seminary, I just lived with this. The professor at the front of the class wasn't about two-thirds of my professors didn't believe in the authority of Scripture, didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, didn't believe in the cardinal doctrines of Scripture. And so they would stand there, and they, there was a miracle, and they would begin explaining the way the miracles. It was always, it was, it was the entertaining part of my day. So they said, they explained the miracle this way, by saying that the jars had held wine and the residue of the wine in the jars flavored the water. Such an argument is inane. It's silly. As why? Because the jars had not been filled with wine. They had been filled with water. The water for purification. The, the text states that. They have a problem. Another problem. In that the people who were there. They were winemakers. They were people who had vineyards. They'd been drinking wine all their lives. They would not have been in awe if they were tasting colored water. Now, many conservatives have been raised in a culture. Conservatives have tried to destroy it, too. They've been raised in a culture that has told them that the Bible teaches that drinking wine is a sin. Therefore, making wine is surely a sin. And so Jesus, since he was the son of God could not have made wine. That just demonstrates an incredible ignorance of Scripture. The Bible teaches plainly that God created wine. The Bible teaches that wine was incorporated into the feasts of the Old Testament. Go back and not only use incorporated wine, but they incorporated strong drink into the spiritual, sacred feasts of Israel. The conservatives' answer to that is that the wine that Israel made was only grape juice. Such a statement is being dishonest with the Bible and with history. The two great agricultural businesses of Israel were grapes and olives. 
they did not plant vineyards for grapes to eat. They planted vineyards for the making of wine. That's where the money was. The Bible does not say grape juice. The Bible says wine. The wine they made contained alcohol because the Bible warned them about drinking too much and becoming drunk. Make no, be make no bones about it. Drinking wine was taught in that it was not a sin. Getting drunk is a sin, period. So what do they do with this miracle? They say, well, Jesus turned the water into grape juice. When they say that, and we will see in a few minutes, that they destroy the powerful meaning and point of this parable. So that's what happened in the wedding feast attended by Jesus. We've seen what did not happen in this wedding feast attended by Jesus. This was not colored water. And it was not grape juice. So thirdly, and this is the crux of the matter, this is the beautiful part of it. Why does this most unusual miracle by Jesus play such a prominent role in John's gospel? It does play a prominent role. Look at John 2, 11. This, the first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That is a dramatic and significant sentence. The first miracle of all the miracles, the first one, the very first one, was at this wedding feast. Now, John is the only gospel writer who records this event. It is left out of the other Gospels. Remember, John is writing his Gospel from a different perspective than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We've already seen he took a, a different approach to Jesus' birth. He didn't disagree with Matthew and Luke's account, with their historical details. He just told us what those historical details meant. That the Word became flesh. He wrote theologically about those birth details. He was probably the only gospel writer at this feast in Cana. Following closely on Jesus calling the disciples in chapter 1, down in Judah, who would you think was there? Think about last week. We would think, and or certainly Andrew, certainly John, certainly Peter, Philip, Nathaniel. Those were the only disciples introduced in John's first chapter. They're the ones that walked back to Galilee with Jesus. And what does John say? This is the first of his signs. Now he's saying, he's not saying. Well, there were other signs before this, but I didn't, this is the first one I'm going to write. No, he said this was his first sign. His first. And he knew that no one had read about it because he knew what Matthew had written. He knew what Luke had written. knew what Mark had written. So this was Jesus' first miracle. Why? Why this one? It seems beneath Jesus. To many it would seem profane, much too worldly. No one got healed. There was no sickness. There was no life in danger. I asked this question for years, strive, trying to understand it. Some would say, well, Jesus got blindsided by his mother. He really didn't intend this to happen. Come on now. Really, the Son of God, who had already known when he met Andrew, had known all about Andrew. When he met Peter, he knew all about Peter. When he met Nathaniel, he knew all about Nathaniel. The Son of God, who already knew he would be crucified. Blindsided? Folks, you can't blindside Jesus. 
from the foundation of the world, the Holy Trinity planned that this would be the Son of God and Son of Man's first miracle. Now that's truth. John calls the miracle signs. This was, he doesn't use the term that's usually translated miracle. This was the first of his signs. It's a Greek word, simeon. A sign points to something. The miracles of Jesus are signs that pointed to his deity. That's why the theological liberals must destroy the miracles. They point to his deity. When he stopped the storm that threatened the disciples' lives on the Sea of Galilee, it not only pointed to his deity, it pointed to him as a creator who controlled creation. This first sign pointed to Jesus' deity, certainly. But there's far more. Turn through Scripture. Turn through the pages of history. Whether you're reading a history book or the Bible, what, is, what are symbols of a meager existence? An existence that you don't want. He was served in prison, bread and water. Bread and water. That's served in meager, austere situations. Wine, on the other hand, is always reserved for the celebration. For occasions of joy. Suited for weddings. Look at Psalm 104, 14 and 15 on your scripture sheet. Speaking to the Lord, you cause grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. And wine to gladden the heart of man. This is a wedding, a time of extreme celebration. What if the master of the feast had tried to serve bread and water to the guests? Mm -mm. We sing one of our favorite hymns at Christmas. Joy to the world. Why is there joy to the world? For the Lord has come. The Lord had come to the feast. The Lord had come to Galilee. He had come to Cana and he had come to a wedding. And it wasn't his first. Joy to the world. Isaac Watts wrote that hymn based on Psalm 98. The hymn was not written as a Christmas carol. It was written to be sung year-round. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. The Son of God, who was present at the first wedding in Genesis, was a guest at this wonderfully happy event in Cana. And he brought the wine. Sometimes when we're going somewhere and we say to somebody's house and we say, what can I bring? Sometimes they'll say, Lord, just bring some wine. Just bring the wine. Well, Jesus, in his first miracle, he brought the wine. 150 gallons. Mm. Don't you see it? He brought the joy. He's the wine that gladdens the heart of man. He's the wine that gladdens the history of man, that gladdens our families, our churches. My first miracle, Jesus was saying, my first sign will be to make wine at a wonderful celebration, but it will be remembered through the ages as the first miracle of the Son of God and Son of Man, proclaiming Him as a source of all joy. Jesus was saying, I'm always the sommelier of the feast.
Whatever the situation, folks, Jesus says, I'll bring the wine. He's saying, he's saying right now to the reader family in their awful sorrow, I'll bring the wine. Don't worry. I'll wipe away the tears. In the worst of situations in sickness, he says, I'll bring the wine. I'll bring the joy. It's a joy that cannot be destroyed. It's a supernatural joy that comes with the Holy Spirit. Oh, I cannot speak of this without laughter. I, could, I told you last week, I couldn't wait to get here today. I was not taught this as a child. I was not taught this in my teens. I still remember when this wonderful biblical theology invaded my life, and I've not been the same since. Well, from this wedding, we must close. And some of you think, well, he's going to go. He's going to go to Revelation and talk about the great wedding feast of the Lamb. I don't have time to do that. So I'm not going there. But believe me, I know that it's there. And we'll get there. But we must go now to the upper room. Go there now. Sit at the table with Jesus. What did he choose to represent his blood? To represent his blood? To represent his atonement? The blood of the Lamb? The shed blood for the forgiveness of sin? He chose wine. You cannot separate the wine of the celebration of Cana. Joy to the world, the Lord has come from the wine of the upper room. Don't you try to make say, well, no, no, that's different. Jesus' first sign, his first miracle, changing the water of meager existence to the wine of celebration. Think about it. Why do we drink red grape juice or red wine at the Lord's table? It's the color of the blood. We're reminded of the great cost of our salvation. With his blood, with his awful death, we're saved. But even in his death, We drink the wine of his resurrection. We drink the wine of his victory. Satan, know this. We take this cup to mark his death. You thought you had a great victory. You thought you had won. But there was, but Jesus actually won the day on that cross. That's a victory. In two weeks, we'll come to the Lord's table and we will not mourn. We'll weep over our sins but we will not mourn over the blood of Jesus we'll drink that wine and celebrate his great victory on that day at Calvary we do not witness an awful defeat we witness a great saving victory that we celebrate every time we take that cup at his table We take this cup, this wine of celebration because it does mark our forgiveness. But it's also a celebration of his victory on our behalf. And he revels in that now in glory. And one day we will revel there with him in that great victory. But for now, we're going to go back to our responsive reading. We're going to read it again. And I pray that you will see the connection. This is a fitting way to end our message. Let's read it responsibly. This is in Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, a aged wine, well-refined. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow us. 
and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And we said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And now we will sing that great hymn by Watts. Hymn number 195, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.